C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome everybody to Hollywood Godfather Podcast. Here we are again, the three amigos. Pat Picciarelli, my co-writer and co-host. Hi everybody, how you doing? And our millennium, Megan Horan. Hello, how are we doing? All right. All right. Well, this is part of our mentor series, and we're really excited about this guy. I don't know how I waited so long to not have him on sooner with some of the greats that we've had on before. But I'm talking about a man who was so influential in my life early, early on. I met him in, you know, with, well, let's get into it first of all. His name is Kirk Kikorian. He's not the typical name out of Vegas that you know, like a Steve Wynn or uh, Maya Lansky or Mo Dalitz or, and go on and on and on. He became the fair hair boy and became a self-made millionaire, billionaire. And what everybody liked about him in Vegas, he had no mob ties, none, that they could find out about, or I would have known anyway. But I met him with Belden Cattleman early on, who owned the El Rancho. And what's interesting about him himself, Kurt, Kurt loves to gamble. Most owners don't. But he was a big player, got enamored with the game, lived in California, and he opened his first mega hotel in 1969. And um, Pat, give, give a little background on this guy. Of, yeah, of, uh, I, tell you, I was fascinated by this guy. You know, usually these uh, Vegas characters, they all fit in the same mold. But a, as you uh, said, Gianni, this guy wasn't connected. He was a self-made man, uh, born in 1917. Uh, at the beginning of World War II, we weren't in it yet. Uh, uh, Hitler had invaded uh, uh, Poland, France, etc. Austria took over Austria. Kirk Kerkorian uh, saw that this was going to expand into a much larger war, and he knew that the United States was going to get involved in it. And he was draft age. He was in his early 20s then. And he was uh, thinking clearly when he said to himself, I don't want to be in the infantry. Uh, I'm going to learn how to fly. So within six, uh, six months, he had a commercial pilot's license. Wow. That's saying something. And it wasn't that he wanted to avoid war, because as soon as he got the license... He volunteered to fly Canadian uh, fighter planes uh, from Canada to Scotland for use by the uh, Royal Air Force. Now, there was a problem here because the uh, fuel tank capacity only got you 1,400 miles, uh, and the trip directly was 2,200 miles, which means you would go splash into the Atlantic because you'd run out of juice. Wow. Uh, was a uh, an, an, an alternate route to take, uh, a, a safer route. Uh, Montreal, where, the, where you, where you took, the, uh, took off from, the Labrador, Greenland, the Iceland, and then Scotland. And all along the way, you can refuel. But he didn't want to do that. 
he wanted to fly directly and he, he felt if he got to a high enough altitude and caught a jet stream he could make it non-stop this was his theory are you kidding no i'm not kidding wow. and it was it was called uh, his route was called the iceland wave and uh uh the, the canadians were paying one thousand dollars for a successful flight over to scotland he made 33 of them without any problems he always caught the wave and uh these these let's put this out the statistics were one in 40 planes didn't make it so no. when he when he got into the, the the 30s 31 32 33 he was he was pressing his luck but uh he was successful he was able to save all that money but he wasn't spending it anywhere he was flying planes back and forth to help the british war effort before the united states got involved in the war so he comes back and he spent five thousand dollars on a cessna aircraft and he worked as a as a general aviation uh pilot uh ferrying cargo uh this was after the war and then he went to vegas in 1944 and he fell in love with the place uh he claims that he was only there a short time and he quit gambling is that true gianni i don't know that i mean i, I knew he was I heavy gambling he had a reputation as a gambler well that's what he claimed maybe when he made a lot of money he went back to it but he bought a fledging charter uh, air service that flew from uh la to las vegas in 1947 well, Trans International Airlines. He paid sixty thousand dollars for the entire airline, wow. and by sixty-eight, he sold it for a hundred to four million dollars. It was still a charter airline. It was still going from L.A. to Vegas. I think that was a good return on his dollar. Yeah, I would think. Jesus, sounds think? like something Megan would do. <laughs> I mean, he he was truly a self-made man. He didn't come from money. He didn't have any money. In fact, to pay for his commercial license, the person who taught him owned a farm. And to pay for his flying lessons, he milked cows. Yep, yep. We paid for them. So by 1964, he's worth $104 million. He loved Vegas. He decides uh, he's going to buy land. It was on that land, hotels were going to be built. Yep. Were, uh, the, the hotels were basically leasing the land from Kerkorian. Uh, I believe the first uh, uh, hotel, but he bought 80 acres in Las Vegas across from the uh, Flamingo for $960,000, 80 acres. Yep. And, I, and you know what's so funny about that? He thought I was following him because I bought the 23 acres behind it. He owned the strip from Flamingo to Tropicana what year was that you bought this land? In 65. <laughs> what did it cost you? 1500 an acre. <laughs> Dirt cheap back in the day. Anyway, he leases this $960,000 uh, acreage uh, to people who were building uh, Caesars. Right. Building the Caesars Palace. And the people who owned Caesars at the time, you'd know better than I would what that would be. Was Al Malnick. Hello. Rented the, rented the land from Kikorian. Uh, the rent and eventual sale of the land to Caesars three years later got him another $9 million. 
he kept on building and building and building. And he uh, built the International Hotel. That was his and first one in 69. The yeah, biggest hotel ever. It. You spoke about this. Uh, his first two performers at the hotel were Barbara Streisand and Elvis Presley. And for, for the people who don't know how uh, Streisand made a lot of money on that deal, why don't you share that with us? Well, what happened was that she was getting $50,000, $25,000 a week at the time, and I happened to know her, her manager, and the, the international stock, being at the hotel wasn't open yet, was only trading at $5. So I said to her manager, I said, why are you taking the money? She didn't need the money. She made your star already. And so was Elvis. And uh, they both took a deal. I think some of them took some cash, some stock, but why it was so successful even and lucrative for them was by August, the stock was at $25 and went to $50. And they, they got it at a $5, er, a $5 um, start buy-in, a share. So you can imagine if they took the 50,000, they would have, you know, a thousand shares of stock. Of course, Bob Streisand was, was so grateful to you that, that she shared that money, I'm sure. Oh yeah, she, she, she would say <laughs> thank you. <laughs> anyway, uh, you get these two international stars as soon as the hotel opened, Streisand and, and, and Presley, they packed the room, which is a huge hotel, they 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 uh, packed the room, and brought in forty two hundred customers for every show. Right, and you know what uh, the interesting thing is? Uh, most people don't know this in, the, in our audience. To most showrooms, including even Caesars, as you, as you mentioned, and the Copa Room, even in Las Vegas, the Sands, it sat max four hundred and sixty people. This showroom, he built it. He said, "I'm going to build the biggest showroom." Two thousand seats with the balcony and he packed it like you said he brought in 4200 people a night two shows a day two shows a night i know it was insane eight o'clock a minute and i was at most of those shows because i you know i was in my 30s and making all kinds of money which confused so many people but i wanted to be there and hanging out with them guys and that's how i got a, a great friendship with elvis but i mean at the three major hotels the guy built it's still the biggest hotels there. It's craziness. Well, he wound up buying the Flamingo and uh, 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 both the, uh, the uh, uh, Flamingo and the International was sold to the Hilton uh, Hotels Corporation and were later renamed the Las Vegas Hilton and the Flamingo Hilton, which makes sense. Right. But uh, I don't know if, if people ever, ever heard of Kirk. Uh, you know, he was, uh, he was known for building hotels buying land, but he also bought movie studios. He purchased MGM. <laughs> purchased MGM in 69 yeah. with his architect friend Martin Stern, and he opened up the uh, the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino, where I stayed. This hotel was like a city. Yeah. I mean, without a map, you get lost in this place. No, it was, it was huge. And the interesting thing about that, in that same time period when he opened that, I I went for my uh, use permit for my, my first hotel. I was like 33, 34 years of age. 
and nobody knew me and I did not want the connection of mob and all that. So I hired like Grant Sawyer, who was the ex-governor as my advisor in the legal team. They had a, a, a law firm called Lionel Sawyer and Collins. They were all dignitaries and lawyers. I hired them and then I hired a Jeffrey Silva who was on the gaming board itself once he left there as my advisor, because I wanted to, to everybody know. And then I needed Kurt Kikorian's friendship and Jackie Gon, who owned the Barbary Coast on the opposite corner from Caesars and where we were. And the Gon family were basically cattlemen out of Texas and they owned everything downtown. But they wanted to get a, they owned that piece for a long time and uh, they built there, and, and then two brothers, the Domaney brothers, their grandfather left them a lot of land. And why I'm bringing this up is because I needed them, like you, like anything you want to do in your house, if you want to change the zoning or you want to go higher into height, which I had to go, because I was going with the 35-story the, hotel. So I made myself, I knew Kurt was the guy to get to, so I was in Beverly Hills all the time, and I used to bunk into him all the time. Always nice, hello, goodbye. And if early on, most people knew I was talking about a good friend of mine, and uh, he owned Le Bistro. And, and um, I had a table there, and I was at his table all the time, and, and that was the place to have lunch before Spago's opened down the street uh, Wolfgang Puck opened the original spot on Sunset Boulevard, which was a night spot. And Kirk Kikorian's office was on Cannon Drive right up the block. So he saw me every night or every day at lunch at Le Bistro. And one day he came to me. I couldn't believe it. And he says, do you mind if I sit down with you, Mr. Russo? I said, please. I mean, it's, it's an honor to have you sit down. So he said to me, I got a letter from the planning commission of Clark County that you're going up for a license. I said, yeah. He says, I find it very interesting. It mentions nothing about finance other than Perry Thomas, the Valley Bank. And he says, you're building a very aggressive hotel, 650 rooms. I said, yeah. He said, well, are you going to be in competition with me? I said, no, not at all. I'm, I'm building all suites. My hotel is all suites. I'm trying something new. And he said, well, your budget is $54 million. I said, yeah. I said, he said, who's financing with you? I said, I have private financing. So with this, knocked him out. And I got very close to the guy. And fortunately, you know, he and all the surrounding neighbors okayed it. And I went before the, uh, the zoning board. In fact, we dug up an article that I shared with both of you, and I, I thought that we'd have Megan read this, because if I read it, it would seem so egotistical. It's an actual, give them the newspaper, the date and the writer and everything, so they can look this up. This is craziness. That's how nuts I was. 
Yes, it was in the Las Vegas Sun on Wednesday, November 22nd, 1978. But, well, let's hold that thought a minute. Re November 22nd, 1978. That was 15 years to the day of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And the people who read my book and friends of mine know I left the country for two years. Now I'm getting this kind of accolades on the anniversary of his death. I couldn't believe it myself. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I thought that was an important no, it is. It's part of my life. <laughs> so the article is titled, Use Permit Requests Approved. It was written by Gary Thompson, a Sun business writer. You want me to read the article? I would love, just a paragraph or two. All right. The young entrepreneur's dream to build a $54 million hotel casino here moved closer to fulfillment Tuesday. The Board of County Commissioners granted Gianni Russo's request for a use permit to build and operate a 650-room, 23-story structure on a seven-acre site at Harmon Avenue and Koval Lane. That's crazy. That's the opposite corner of Kirk Kerkorian. <laughs> and then I still had another 12 acres, or more actually. No, I, uh, yeah. No, I had uh, 15 more acres that were going to towards Flamingo. And then when he built Bally's, I owned the property behind him on that too, which was, uh, you know, bizarre for me being by myself. But uh, there was more than enough uh, business, more than enough room, as many hotels as you wanted to put up back then. Oh my God, Vegas, yeah. Vegas was booming. The MGM Grand was the largest hotel in the world at the time, had more square footage than the Empire State Building. And you're building next to it. <laughs> and the, the, I mean, I, Vegas, and that's when I was going there, you know. And, well, I was going there a little later in the 70s. But uh, it was, the town was wide open. It, it was constant construction. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately. But, you and know, it was to, and then to watch him, you know, and to have him as a friend and a mentor. And I got really close to his older sister, Rose, and because uh, I, I was a backgammon player and she knew that. So she used to come by all the time. We'd play backgammon and this, that, and the other. And a mutual friend of hers, Karen, another Armenian. They only hung out with Armenians. I loved the the the, the loyalty they had. But must have been a lot of them in Vegas. Huh? Uh, no kidding. It was like their own clique. Yeah. But when when I opened State Street, Rose was living on the Las Vegas Country Club right down the block, between her brother's International, and me building State Street. And he came in, and he said to me, are you following me around? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, how come you opened this place? I said, are you open? Because I had an opportunity to get a grandfather license. He says, this has a license? I said, yeah, but it's grandfathered in. I don't need 150 rooms. I'm going to put a casino in. So <laughs> with that, again, he found me very amusing. And his sister always was talking about me. So I actually put Armenian dishes on State Street's menu and eventually put vegan dishes early on in the 80s because Rose became a vegan. Her brother became a vegan, as and our audience don't know this. This man died in 98 just a few years ago, played tennis three or four sets a day until he was 96. But I mean, this guy is responsible for three mega hotels. And uh, he really 
took the time out to talk to me about so many things. And then when I got into The Godfather, that blew him away. <laughs> but um, it's, it's crazy, his, you know, what he's done and how many people, and how nice he's been to so many people. I mean, I, I don't know if he went into any of his philanthropic work, Pat. Well, uh, he had a little problem. He was making too much money, uh, so he decided in addition to buying MGM, he bought Columbia Pictures. Right. Uh, so he couldn't be in competition with himself. The feds sued him under the federal antitrust law for owning t two major studios. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Uh, he, uh, he lost that, I believe. Uh, or he... He combined the two is what he did. Yeah, he combined them because he merged the licensing of yeah, film think, long yeah. before people realized that we're going to be streaming, that we're going to be, I mean, just the video business. I mean, I think he made Blockbuster. He must have had 40% of the library. He still owns the whole Rocky series. They own all, he, that's what his library was. And then there was this young genius. He had two daughters, uh, Trish and Linda. And uh, Tracy is a real name, but he used to call it Trish. And that's why the company's called Tracinda. It's four letters, her first name, and four of the last of Linda. And he wanted a son in the worst way. And he said to me once, maybe he was hallucinating, he said, why don't you marry one of my daughters? I said, which one don't you like? The <laughs> I said, why do you want me as a son of a nuts? You know, I'm, I'm in my 30s only. And he said, no, no, I mean, I just, I have to have a grandson. Long story short, he never had a son, never had a grandson. And he, he found a guy that I became very close to, still alive too, Alex Yemenijian. And he was going through problems with bookkeepers and all that. And he, he knew about Alex, and I knew about Alex, owning a book bookkeeping firm in the Valley of California. So we had a meeting with him. And Alex, I mean, you got to see this guy. He looked like Rudolph Valentino in his heyday. Very smart. And he said, I want to buy your company. He said, I don't want to sell my company. So all of a sudden, blind bidders started bidding on Alex's company. And he wound up selling it for 20, 20 times its value. And it was Kirk Okorian. He had to get the guy. And to this day, he made that guy a billionaire. Alex Germanesian, what a beautiful guy. But I mean, I'm just trying to illustrate how giving he was. I mean, he wasn't a cheap guy. He, he was very conservative. He drove his own Ford car, never had bodyguards, never had an entourage. And I used to have lunch with him every Friday until his death, or until he got sick. He got sick maybe a year or two prior that he wasn't going out as much. But every Friday, he had a table at Spago's, now on Cannon Drive, and he held court. And if he knew you, he'd wave you over. And if he didn't wave you over and you started approaching the table, the, you know, the, the waiters and management knew to keep people away from him. But this guy was so generous, and Tracinda's office 
to my understanding, is still in Beverly Hills, right down the street, between Le Bistro and Spago's. Talk about a man who's just, you know, uh, um, he's methodical so in everything he does. Nani, let me ask you this. Uh, since he died, is his empire still a family-run operation? Yeah. I mean, he set it up in so many trusts. In fact, a lot of it is overseen still by Alex Yemenijian. I don't, I don't know who else became confidants with him. And uh, because, you know, I lost track of it once I closed State Street and moved on to so many other things. It, uh, but I always kept in touch with Rose until she passed on. And then like everything else in life, when you're not in the same neighborhoods and doing the same thing, and a repetitious situation that I, he was doing, I, I, I lost track of him. But I used to see Alex, they used to have an annual meeting here in New York with bankers. So we always had dinner, and I still love the guy. In fact, Alex and his son, his youngest son, who's in his 20s, they bought the Tropicana Hotel, which again goes full circle to me, because early on in one of our shows, Frank Costello and Joe Kennedy owned that, and that's when I opened my club called Tiffany's and had Elvis open it for me, and I got to know Elvis because of Kirk Kerkorian when he was over there staying in uh, Suite 3000. And so, I mean, it, it just went, went full circle, indirectly and directly, with Kirk Kerkorian having something to do with it. Because if he didn't approve me as a neighbor with all the acreage he had to sign off on, I think, the, you know, as we all know uh, or don't know, planning boards and, and commissioners and I know the commissioner's name yet, I can't believe it, Thalia Dundero. She was the commissioner in our area in Clark County. I don't know how much money him, Steve Wynn, everybody else contributed to her, but I didn't give anything to everybody because I, was I wasn't doing anything. I had raw land. But uh, I, I think he was very instrumental in, in behind the scenes of me getting as much as I did get early on, because like you pointed out, there was no, I had the only license, this is going to knock you out, I had the only gaming license 100% owned by an Italian in the state of Nevada. And when I went before the, the gaming board, I, I sat with him and I sat with a couple other people that I mentioned earlier, and uh, they gave me a couple of ideas. And again, if they didn't give me these ideas first, the gaming commission, all these very waspy Mormon people were ready to eat me up. And when they had my gaming board where you have to go, you pay, and first of all, to let our audience know, you pay for your investigation. So if there's people have to fly to New York, you pay for it. You pay for the investigation, you pay for the all the legal, and that's what they do. And you don't know until they rule you'll get it or not. You don't get your money back. You can't write it off. You can't do it. And so they're really putting your back against the wall. And you have to build your casino so they can inspect it. So they're really trying to put you in a situation that you better know what you're doing. So well, you 
a casino before they grant you a license. Yes. Is that wild? It, you're screwed. Yep. It's crazy. That What's that? Did that ever happen to anybody? Well, it almost happened to Steve Wynn because Steve Wynn was opening Bellagio and he had two people on his team that under investigation, and one of them is a very close friend of mine, but um, I won't mention his name, but uh, he got caught into a situation and they were gonna license him for that reason. And they were ready to open, it's like two weeks. So Steve came to me, he says, you have a gaming license? I said, yeah. He said, would you step in? And I said, yeah, of course, I, I, until you get, oh, yeah, no problem. Because they needed that other person, me, having a license and improved. But then uh, you know, it all worked out. But uh, no, that, that's what's crazy about it. So I said to myself, you know what? And I listened to all of these guys who got their licenses. And before the, uh, they opened the, the, the hearing on me, I said, may I approach all the chairman before we go on record? Because I know where they went. I knew everybody was telling me, you know, the gaming commission guys were here and, and asking questions about you. Chicago, Kansas City, everywhere. <laughs> so I approached them and hopefully kept my fingers crossed that this would work. I said, gentlemen and, and ladies on the board, I don't want to waste your time, but I want to be upfront with you. I know every mobster there is, from Italy to New York. It's, it was my lifestyle. I made gangster movies, you will know that. And, I, I'm, and I'm from a town called New York City. And Carlo Gambino, I knew him as my uncle as then. I said, so I'm willing to risk this. I will put up a million dollar bond, non-refundable, for a one year temporary license. And if I fail, you got the million dollars, and you could even take my place, because it's not worth anything to me without the casino. They all looked at each other, and they gave me the license. Well, why not? <laughs> yeah, I but mean, normally, you know, they would say, what's this guy got to hide? But, you know, I gave, it to, you know, I gave him a million dollars, non-refundable. I don't think if I did that, that I would have got it, because you needed an unanimous vote on this and there was a lot of out people up there that I knew out for the kill but the million dollars going to Clark County it was a lot of money well, you gave them an offer they couldn't refuse I just made yeah that's a good phrase I may use that yeah, write that down I'm gonna write that down All right. but you know what the, the interesting thing is when you see who advised me I had an Armenian the Domaini brothers two Jewish people I had Steve Wynn, Jewish, and then I had a bunch of cattlemen from Texas called the Binions and, and the, and the uh, Gons. They own everything downtown, but they just loved me. I was like an enigma to them, saying, where's this kid getting his money from? But it all went through the Valley Bank, which was a Mormon bank in Salt Lake City. So uh, I... I, 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 I <laughs> Anyway, so uh, people realize he wasn't only involved in Vegas. He tried to take over Chrysler. Oh, yeah, and, uh, he almost did a good job of it, too. He, he almost did it. It was a hostile takeover, and uh, he got a lot of heat from Chrysler's management, and he decided to back off. 
Right. But well, then uh, he went after Ford too for a minute. Yeah, he went after Ford too. Uh, you know, you, you you hear these things and you say, well, he, he's probably not a very popular guy, but just the opposite. Everybody loved this Other guy. The guy, yeah. The guy. What we're talking about here is just business. Yeah. Uh, he was very personable. He was like a, a, a Howard Hughes that had a personality. You know, everybody everybody liked the guy. Very approachable guy. Well, Howard Hughes, that we'll get into that someday. We have to because Howard Hughes was so controlled. And, you know, um, when he started getting into Vegas, he was already strung out on heroin. Not that he wanted to be. But, you know, a, a, another point we should say that in, in one time, early on, this man, Forbes magazine, listed him in the world as the 31st richest man in the world. You had 150, you had 15 billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, a lot of money. 15 billion by buying one airplane. So if any of our people out there, young adventurous, the guy invested $5,000 and look him up. That's what he did it with. $5,000 turned into 104 million. Yeah. From that investment. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's it can be done. He he's the true definition of the American dream, I think. Yeah, I'll say. Anyway, Megan, what, what do you think? Anything to add, darling? I was about to ask you. Were you around? Uh, so I heard what was said to be one of the worst disasters in Vegas was the MGM Grand fire. Oh my God! Yeah, I was there. It was Bally's at the time. Oh no, it turned into Bally's after. Bally's. The MGM Grand fire was the good news about that fire most of it was smoke damage but people were literally the gaming people would laying on the tables and players degenerate gamblers were swallowing the chips <laughs> because everything was on the table they had to leave yeah yeah i mean uh, but and a good statistic that Pat read up on. Tell him how fast he turned that around and reopened it, Pat. Within a month. Is that That's wild? And you, you say, well, it was only smoke damage. Smoke damage. Well, first of all, the smoke, the smoke damage killed 83 people. Right. It, it, it's the fire that gets you. You very rarely burn to death in a fire. Right. You inhale smoke and you die. But anyway, he was reopened in a month. Yep, they stripped it out 24-7. Took everything that could be, hold an odor, rugs, padding, drapes. I mean, but the guy has the money, you know. It's, it's, it's wild when you think of what he has done. And, 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 I, and somehow, some way, my memory serves me right, he put a, a, a fund together to compensate those people and their families before the insurance company even stepped in. Good man, hard to find. No. Well, I think it's time to go to mailbag. Yeah, do it. Are we all right, Megan? Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's get to it. All right, please. Let's go make some money first. We'll be right back, my darlings. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar, from Modena, Italy. Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces 
marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneBuyInItalian.com That's CorleoneBuyInItalian.com All right, we're back. All right. Let's get to it. First question I have is from Benny. Benny says, Gianni, thank you for answering my question last episode on Jimmy Grippo. I was curious if you could talk about more stories on Grippo, if any, and stories on Tony Giorgio who is also a magician and your co-star in The Godfather. Thank you again. Would love to hear an episode in the future on magicians and the mob. Loving the show as always. Well, Jimmy Grippo was the guy I really knew because of my time I spent at Caesars, and he was an in-house, um, what do they call them, table-side magicians. So he'd go to all the gourmet rooms, even while you were playing games. While they were at the Baccarat, reshuffling six decks, he'd come and do tricks for these people to scheme amused. The man was amazing. I mean, he was an illusionist. And, uh, you know, I, I hired him. I remember I had my daughter Gia's first Holy Communion <laughs> at, at Caesar's Palace. I took over the Bacchanal room during the day because it was right after the Mass. So I had her in, in, invite her schoolmates and their parents and I took it over, and thank God her name wasn't Maria, or, or, or it was only Gia. I had her initials in the fountain in the middle, you know, like six foot high, Gia. And Sinatra loved Gia. He met her poolside and all that as a kid. So he said, I want to get Gia a gift. He says, uh, I said, well, you don't have to do that. He said, I want to get a gift. What's her favorite TV show? I says, happy days. I said, what, what are you going to do? He had the cast of happy days come to Gia's first Holy Communion. That's awesome. Everybody flipped out. They couldn't believe that Fonzie and all these people were there. That's so cool. But I'll tell you how generous Sinatra was to me. When I went to get the check, he paid for the check. A hundred and some people for lunch. And I was very, I, I was not being frugal at all. The prayer book cake of Gia's thing was a, a major cake, but you could see through the pages. And Nat Hart, how do I remember this guy? He was the head baker there. Nat Hart took about a week to do that cake. But uh, they're, they're, they're stories you can't even, how, how do you tell anybody that? And I still see some of these guys. Pa, who was that guy, Potsy? What was his name? His real name. Potsy? Yeah, in that show. Uh, Fonzie. Fon no. No, Fonzie, I know who. No, Potsy yeah. was uh, like the. Potsy, for some reason, was the character all the kids liked. He was a, a dark haired kid, nice, good looking boy. Yeah. He's still around. I know, but he sees me on the street. He, that's why I'm bringing it up. I can see him in Beverly Hills. I remember your daughter's first Holy Communion. It's not, oh, Sinatra stopped by and gave her long stem roses, too, which knocked everybody out. But, uh, no, I mean, these stories, you couldn't even make them up, man. You can't make them up. It's crazy. So it's, uh, but thank you, Ben. Was that Ben? Yeah. Yeah, Benny. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I think people like long answers. 
All right, next is from Randy. Randy says, I've been a loyal listener of your podcast starting from episode number one, and I really enjoy listening to all of you each week. I have always been fascinated with the mafia and enjoyed learning about all the crazy situations and encounters you've had with various people in the life and in Hollywood. The one thing that I am interested in knowing more about is your role with the Vatican. Can you please explain how you became involved with the Vatican and their connections with the mafia? Keep up the great work. Thank you. Well, it's pretty well known of a lot of people right now that uh, by the time this show is aired, uh, 10 cardinals have been indicted for something I was doing that was pretty much legitimate then. I got involved with the Vatican with my partner Nick Nitty out of Chicago, and we were couriers, and we used to move a lot of money from Nevada to the Vatican, and they would invest it, and it was a legitimate business. Uh, so I understood it. I don't know. But that's was a, that? But you can't do that anymore. That's yeah. a no-no. <laughs> so I not only, how I got involved was through the popes, three different ones. First, John Paul. We, we did that for a long time, Nick and I, fortunately. So I'm, I'm sorry to see this going down to where now uh, the sophistication of electronics and the, I heard from an FBI agent, it's the, there's a, uh, I heard this, I know it was true. In our $100 bills, there's a micro thread in it or something? They could actually- There's, there's uh, silk threads, uh, but they, they, they've been in bills forever. No, but th th these can be activated as GPS. Oh, you mean chips? No, it's in that thread that we're talking about. There's one thread really? that's going through. That's what they told me, so I don't know. So that's how they-, they brought, watching, I, it's, That would seem like it would, it would cost more than a bill is worth. That's technology. Man. Well, m most of those bills do. <laughs> a, 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 a dime today, they, they shouldn't be making because there's more silver in it than it's worth. That's crazy, but anyway. Next question. All right, next is from Oscar. Hello guys from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm writing in for the second time. The first I made you guys laugh when I said your voices mixing and mingling together was like the smell of honeysuckle dew on a summer evening, LOL. You know, I've often been told that. He goes on to say, I was wondering if each of you guys have a special saying that you try to live by or get a special meaning from. Just a way for your fans to gain a little insight. As for me, I always liked, quote, when I was a child, I acted as a child, spoke as a child, laughed as a child. When I grew up, I gave up childish things. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Once again, I wish you all the best from my family to yours. Godspeed and God bless. P.S. Tell Gianni I've seen him the other night when I flipped through and seen him standing there with his buddy Steven Seagal in the pool hall singing out for justice. Oh my God, yeah. Well, uh, I think he's trying to convince us to use honeysuckle dew or something yeah. as our new. <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I have something that, that, that could be considered a, a saying. I was uh, advised, I had I was trying to write for years and years. I had written three books, went nowhere, couldn't find an agent. It's thunder here. I think my roof is going to cave in. Anyway, uh, this one Italian uh, guy that my father knew uh, back in the day, and he's got like 95 years old, he tells me, you got to write like an Italian. He said, what? He said, people want to hear a story in this country. They say, I'm going to tell you a story. Italians, they say, you're not going to believe this shit. 
<laughs> that's the way you got to write. Well, that's, know, that's the way you write. Hello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we, we can't do that on the radio. <laughs> that's an Italian saying. I mean, if, if that's what uh, yeah. the, uh, the guy wrote the email is talking about. That's funny. Worked for me. Okay. Danny, how about you? Any sayings you live by? No, no. I have so many sayings, and they change what doesn't annually. Change. <laughs> I don't have one saying, no, I never did. I, 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 you know what it is? I deal with so many different variations of people in different countries right now. It's getting me, I, I don't even know who I'm talking to anymore in the middle of the night. I just say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and they tell me. <laughs> Moving right. on. Well, that is all we have time for tonight. All right, please. All right, well, everybody, thank you, obviously, for the cards and letters, and keep tuning in, keep giving our, our reviews. We hear that's helping us along here. And uh, stay safe, wear a mask if you feel like it, and protect your neighbor. God bless you. And we'll see you next week. Yes. Bye-bye. All right, perfect. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night.